Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. God, Christopher Luxon is certifiably useless, isn't he? How can the leader of the National Party not support a call for a huge order of carpet tiles for hundreds of primary schools around the country to be made from wool? There was the the stupid man on TV last night blithering about how taxpayers should expect value for money, which is true. But in the 21st century, when words like sustainability and climate change and the environment are all the buzz, how can the leader of a party that supposedly supports farmers say it's okay for synthetic carpet tiles to go into schools? The guy really has no idea. Frankly, this decision by the Ministry of Education is a disgrace. The minister should be on her high horse, but of course, she's missing in action on the matter. From the people I talk to, the rural vote is swinging more and more towards ACT anyway. But for the leader of the National Party to not even stop and think for half a second about what he was about to say shows that he's not a real politician. This was an absolutely easy political hit. For me, wool is one of the wonders of the world. It's sustainable, it's warm, it's fire-resistant. It should be government policy to carpet all government-owned buildings in wool. And while they're at it, they should use wool for insulation as well. The price of wool is so low at the moment, it must surely be a good deal. But Christopher Luxon showed yesterday he's still a CEO. He's still thinking of the bottom line. He should have thought about the good of the country and the environment and backed the sheep farmers. If they go en masse to act on October the 14th, well, frankly, you can hardly blame them. Now, I went to a single-sex high school. So did my father. So did my two sons. And at least two of my New Zealand-based grandsons go to a boys' prep school now, ahead of a single-sex high school in the next few years. So let's say I'm pretty biased towards single-sex high schools. But we haven't built a new boys' high school in this country for years. I think Westlake, which opened on Auckland's North Shore in 1962, might be the most recent. But the results of a new study on academic results for boys show that between 2017 and 2021, half of those at boys' high schools get university entrance, while only 30% of boys at co-ed schools did. Only 6.3% of boys at single-sex schools left with no qualifications, while 14.3% of boys at co-ed schools left with nothing to show for their years at high school. Now, these results back up two previous surveys during the last 13 years. And what's more, the decile of the school and the ethnicities of the students made no difference. The outcome is the same. Boys do better at boys' schools. And when boys' academic achievements are in general lagging behind those of girls, wouldn't a Ministry of Education serious about achievement be pushing the case for more boys' high schools? The problem is, this ministry has a predominantly female leadership team and appears keener 
on ideology than achievements. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, anytime you have a so-called celebrity roast, I guess you just have to be prepared to put up with somebody getting offended because that's what life is in 2023. One person's joke is another one's insult. To be fair, the printed menu for this debate in Auckland the other night was pretty borderline when it came to the lines about the Auckland councillor Alf Filipina and his wife Joe Bartley are using the phrase chocolate chip in relation to a Samoan couple is what you might have got away with in the 1960s, but I'm afraid not now. What I'm staggered by, though, is how the description of Jacinda and Clark's mixed mash hasn't fired up the lovies as well, because this is what it says. Quote, you pay double, we promise you the world, but deliver nothing. Comes with a dusting of Colombia's finest, unquote. And uh, we're not talking about coffee here either. So how come there's no uproar about hinting in the strongest and most cynical way imaginable that the former Prime Minister's partner is a cocaine user? In fact, the story on NewsHub last night referenced four of the eight items on this joke fake menu. The not-so-subtle hint about Clark Gayford's after-hours predilections uh, didn't warrant a mention. Yet Mr. Trans-queer-renter-quote, Shanil Lal, had to be included, and there was even an attempt to get Chloe Swarbrick to say something about her mixed green salad featuring hash cookies and magic mushrooms guaranteed to leave you like a left-wing voter not working, which I think is actually quite clever. In general... We just all need to get our sense of humour back. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. My wife sent me to pick up a few things for her because I was in town. This was the brief list that she gave me. Two bottles of shower gel body soap, one for each shower in the house, uh, some dates, some grapes, some kiwi fruit, some mandarins, and coconut yogurt in a jar. Seven items. To be fair, I picked up two packets of dates. So with the two bottles of shower gel, there were eight items in my shopping basket. Eight. I put the New World card through to see if there were any discounts. Uh, there were none. Total price, $75.86. Okay, okay, some of the stuff I bought might be what you call high-end. But that's an average of over $9 an item. I don't usually pay too much attention to grocery bills, but this one shocked me. This was nothing more than a can-you-pop-in-and-get-me-a-few-things-please-darling kind of supermarket visit. I guess that... My wife and I can afford it, but it's when you see a number like that for a very small shop for a retired couple in their 60s, you get an appreciation of how a family of four or five might really struggle with a big grocery shop. If there should be one overriding ambition for any political party in this year's election campaign, I think it should be to get policies up that will bring grocery inflation under control if that is possible. Now, this is a subject I will talk more and more about on this show because it's something that gets me absolutely annoyed. 
It is name suppression. Some bloke in Auckland is accused of indecent assault on a boy aged between 12 and 16 back in 1995, and then with indecently assaulting the same person, who by now was over the age of 16, between 1995 and 1997. Then there's another accusation involving another man in 1999. They're what you call historic sex charges. Now, apparently this guy, the accused, was once involved in a political party, but he was not an MP, but he's had his trial postponed till next year because the case, according to his lawyer, could become a political football in election year. The judge, Anna Scallon, has given the man name suppression till his trial starts in August of next year. Yet the Crown, who opposed name suppression, said the man is no longer a political figure, and what's more, he is not a household name. Yet the judge said the following, quote, I accept the publication of the applicant's name against the backdrop of his former role in a political party would very likely result in the case becoming the subject of intense media interest and a political football. This is particularly the case in election year. Unquote. To which I say, so bloody what? Judges are supposed to be impartial, not influenced by politics, and yet here is the judge making an intensely political judgment. I think this is appalling. It is yet another example of our name suppression rules being used for the advantage of the well-off. This guy also told the court he wouldn't get a job if his name was published. Again, I say, so bloody what? Open justice should mean just that. If you're accused of a crime, face the music. Prove your innocence. Kevin Spacey doesn't have name suppression, and he's on trial at this very moment. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. My address by email is inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text 2057. If you've got uh, any comments on anything about content of this afternoon show or on, uh, indeed, any other issues. But if you want any proof that Australia is now a corrupt country, not prepared to allow a fair contest of ideas, not prepared to indulge and encourage free speech, and not prepared to grant a visitor's visa to someone for purely political reasons, look no further than the case of Donald Trump Jr. Now, he was supposed to be visiting Australia from this weekend for a speaking tour. The promoters of his visit sold 12,000 tickets to his appearances. Trump Jr. applied for his visa in May. He needed to be on a plane yesterday. Uh, as of Wednesday afternoon at five o'clock, the visa for his visit had not been issued. So reluctantly, the promoters cancelled the visit and said they will reschedule. Yet within an hour, the visa was issued. But it's too late for now. But you see, there is no way this visa was delayed for administrative reasons. It was delayed because the Australian Labor government and its weasel ambassador in Washington, the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, do not want Donald Trump Jr. in Australia. The government even managed to get a Labor Party-aligned columnist in the Australian last weekend to rubbish the visit and say that Trump Jr.'s visa should be denied because, among other things, 
Donald Trump Jr. is an anti-Democrat who encouraged the overturning of an election. He's a white supremacist and he's a conspiracy theorist. And that was just for starters. There is no actual proof that Trump Jr. is any of those things, but because he is the son of Orange Man Bad, the Australian government decided they didn't want him in the country. So they prevaricated until Trump's promoters could wait no more and called it off. The same delays happened with the Brexit campaign and Nigel Farage last year. His visa was issued just one day before he flew out to Australia for a very successful speaking tour. Somehow, though, I doubt that Hunter Biden would have any difficulty at all getting a visa to visit Australia. We're all's goods, as long as you're mates with the important people. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You would think in a country with a shortage of doctors, having a third medical school would be a no-brainer. After all, if we train more doctors, then surely that could only help address the shortage. So that's why it's quite staggering that the Tertiary Education Union, which represents academics, has come out against this proposal, calling it pork barrel politics because it's been proposed by the National Party. But what I like about this proposal is that it's a different kind of medical education process, similar to what happens in the US and in some places in Australia, in that it's a postgraduate program. So you must have a degree already before you can apply, and therefore the thinking is you will be a bit more mature in your career ambitions and that you really want to become a doctor. Medical education is expensive and very much sought after, but it's actually surprising to realise that a good number of MBCHB graduates don't actually become doctors and don't even work in the medical industry. You might be aware of a couple of high-profile examples of this. Uh, The businessman and former All Black David Kirk and former Test cricketer Justin Vaughan, although he is now back in health technology after having been in cricket administration. So having people of graduate age around, that is 21 years old or older, go to medical school, and who really want to be doctors, is a really good philosophical change in medical education. And compared to Australia, the number of medical schools in this country is markedly low, staggeringly low, really. We have two. Australia, with five times our population, has 21. Yet they have a doctor shortage too. Now, we won't completely solve our health workforce problem by having more medical graduates, but logic says it will certainly make a significant difference. Well, the manufacturers of rat tests must be laughing all the way to the bank. There appears to have been a massive overordering and oversupply of them in many places around the world. Uh, the ACT Party has pointed out that this country has spent something like half a billion dollars on these rapid antigen test kits, many of which are about to expire. And despite the Ministry of Health virtue signalling nonsense about finding other uses for them and trying to recycle them, I'm certain they will just be thrown into the landfill. But in Australia, there's a similar story. In fact, it's even worse. State governments there have spent $2 billion buying enough rats so that each Australian, on average, could have 22 rat tests. I mean, what imbecile public servant in their right mind 
would think that any sane person would want to test for COVID 22 times. In some states, though, it was even worse, and therefore the average is high. Western Australia, which really was the ultimate hermit kingdom during the COVID madness, ordered enough rats so that each resident, (laughs) I laugh at this, each resident in WA could test for COVID 41 times, while in the People's Republic of Victoria, the number was 32 tests per person. I mean, our stockpile number is a lot lower than that, which is cold comfort. But it again begs the question, why was the government so insistent on being the only purchaser of these things? Many a private company wanted to import them for their employees and to share with other companies or to sell on the open market. But they weren't allowed to because the government knew best. Well, that's proved a complete disaster economically and now it would seem environmentally. If the government had been more flexible, then the taxpayer could have saved what the ACT Party MP Brooke Van Belden estimates is half a billion dollars, or half of the annual budget, for Pharmac. The company that makes these things, which one doctor told me were pretty useless anyway, uh, that company that makes the rats has just opened another crate of champagne, celebrating its windfall from the stupid government purchasing agents in New Zealand and Australia. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, today's news about technology did not surprise me in the slightest. First, the new app Threads. It picked up 30 million users on its first day of operation. With the resources of uh, Facebook and Instagram behind it, Threads could become a real threat to Twitter, Although with uh, Mark Zuckerberg's censorious mind hovering over the top of it, I wonder if the new Elon Musk attitude to free speech and no censorship might yet prevail. I'm on Twitter and on Facebook. I read them, but I seldom contribute. I don't see the point. I know my views on the world. I doubt anybody's going to change them at my stage of life. And I'm not here to convince others of the correctness of my stance because others will find out in due course. (laughs) But now with my tongue firmly out of my cheek, I want to make the case for 12-year-olds. 12-year-olds who play sport, do drama, learn music and generally keep themselves super busy with extracurricular activities. Because the news from this new Otago University study about the digital device habits of 12-year-olds is pretty disturbing, although not surprising. The study has found that today's 12-year-old on average spends a third of his or her time out of school on a digital device, and a third of that is after 8 o'clock at night. Now, I've got a 12-year-old grandson. His parents reluctantly let him join the device world in the last couple of years, but at the same time, they make a serious effort to have all three of their kids in the family involved in as much sport and other activity as there are daylight hours. I look on from afar and think, God, what a drag, racing off to basketball and then football training and then ballet and swimming and God knows what else, karate maybe. But then I think there are parents making a serious effort to fight what will probably be a losing battle against the digital tidal wave, a wave whose force will only be increased by the arrival and spectacular early uptake of threads. As a man of advanced age now, I'm very happy just to sit on the sidelines and be thankful it wasn't part of my 12-year-old existence. Our text machine is now live. 
send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. In this day and age of rugby test matches in close proximity to each other time-wise, the All Blacks have had to take a few gambles with their selections, and it seems to me there's a few eyebrow-raising choices for the test against Argentina on Sunday morning our time, with rather too much of an eye on the game against South Africa back in Auckland only six days later. For a start, we should remember that the Pumas have beaten the All Blacks twice in the last six matches between the two sides since 2020. Uh, Both of those wins were on this side of the Pacific too, once in Sydney and then infamously in Christchurch only last September. So is Ian Foster dicing with danger by leaving out both Sam Whitelock and Brodie Retallick for this match and bringing back the old hooker Dane Coles and all this for a match in Argentina these days under the tutelage of that very wily Australian coach Michael Checker. I guess it's just the way rugby is these days. Sometimes you just can't pick your first choice players for every match because of the schedule of matches and you have to hold them in reserve for the ones you really, really want to win, such as the game against the Springboks at Mount Smart Stadium uh, next weekend. Anyway, it is great to see the All Blacks finally underway in Rugby World Cup year, albeit a few weeks later than usual. I will back them to win this weekend, but then I always do. And after all, not that long ago, we always said, well, the All Blacks never lose to the Pumas, do they? Ah, but that was then. This is now. One thing is for sure, in their most recent match in Hamilton uh, last September, the All Blacks won by 50 points a week after losing in Christchurch. I'm quite prepared to bet a lot of money that the All Blacks will not win by 50 points this weekend. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show Enjoy your weekends. We will talk again on Monday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Right here. On RCR, Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.